Amen. Amen. Have a seat, congregation. We are not slaves to fear, but that does not mean that we don't deal with it. That it does not try to work in our lives. And so this morning we're going to be talking about that. And we're going to see what uh, resources the Lord has put in our hand and how he would have us to, how, how he would strengthen us when things that are fearful might make us afraid or might try to make us afraid. So we're in Acts chapter 24. Thank you, Caroline. 1734 in the, I know, the, yeah, you know, I was just thinking about how uh, Lindsay invited people to move forward, and then I was wondering, maybe no one's moving forward because they see what I do to Nick when he sits up front, <laughs> how I use him in my sermons. <laughs> He's such a good sport, and I promise that if you sit any closer, I won't do that to you. <laughs> so Acts chapter 24, Paul has just survived a a murderous death plot. Forty men have taken a vow and have said, we will not eat or drink until this man is dead. And um, by the grace of God, uh, one of his nephews has heard and reported it, and he was whisked away in the middle of the night by a very large regiment of Roman cavalry and soldiers, and he's 68 miles away in Caesarea with the governor. And now we're picking up the story. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere, and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me 
arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are making against me now. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. It's the earliest description of Christians. It was called the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd against me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. God's word. So I mentioned before reading scripture that we're going to talk about when we face fear, we're going to talk also about how do we sustain or how are we, how are we sustained in seasons where we don't understand or we can't see what God is doing, where um, we're kind of in the dark, long seasons, maybe where we're not hearing God speak or um, we aren't sure why he's allowing certain things in our lives. Difficult seasons. So 
here's Paul, and he has escaped death. And just to recap what we just read, he's on trial before the governor. And I don't know if you noticed it, but um, they are really intent, these these Jewish folks, on, on getting rid of him. I mean, they really want him dead. They They bring out the big guns. The high priest, the leader of the entire Jewish faith, makes a 68-mile journey on foot or by horse with a lawyer and a group of people. 68 miles they go to stand in front of this Roman governor and spew accusation against Paul. They're serious about really wanting to rid the earth of this man. And so they open this... this um, Trial with flattery. Oh, most excellent Festus. Actually, um, the history books tell us that he was a horrible leader, that there was uh, not a lot of good that happened underneath him. There was quite a bit of rebellion, not peace. And that uh, when, when, he, when he leaves at the end of this passage, it's because he got the boot. And the only reason he wasn't killed is because his brother was in power. Festus is not excellent. Felix, thank you. I keep getting them, them mixed up. Felix, Felix is who we're dealing with today. Then Festus, thanks. So these opponents that want to rid the earth of Paul, they're full of hatred, they're full of anger, and they're full of flattery, trying to, trying to woo this leader into um, seeing things their way. And then they're, they're spewing directly opposite of the truth against Paul. So just picture, if you will, how intimidating this situation could feel. I mean, it's intimidating to be in court. It's intimidating to be in a small courtroom. I've sat in court cases and watched people have to have to stand and make a case. It is, it is no small thing to get up and speak and to represent yourself and to answer questions, let alone being in front of a governor a, a, a whole entourage of people and a whole entourage of accusers, and they have just filled the room with accusation against you. Lie, 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 and you're the only one who knows that that's all a lie. This is seriously intimidating. And the Holy Spirit really empowers Paul beautifully to clearly, systematically, Lay out a defense, point by point by point. Paul doesn't lash out in anger. He doesn't yell. He doesn't try to debunk it all at once. He just simply says, empowered by the Spirit of God. Remember God said, Jesus said, when you stand in front of leaders, you will know what to say. And Paul stood up, and there's this really clear, no That's not true. There's no flattery. He says, I know you've been governor for a number of times, so I'm glad to present my case. That's not true. This is why. This is where I was. This is what happened. If you look into this, you'll find this. This, you'll find this. This, you'll find this. And, oh, by the way, there are some Jews from the province of Asia. Those are the ones that rounded him up, that saw him in the marketplace, right? If they want to bring a charge, they should be here, but they're not, and so they can't present their case. And the way that Luke records this makes it very clear that Paul has, as a Roman citizen standing before a Roman governor, has defended himself rightly and proved himself to be innocent. And so the expected outcome is that the Roman governor would acknowledge his innocence 
and would release him. But it doesn't happen. It's like Luke sets us up for what should happen and it doesn't come about. Instead, Luke records that Felix delays. He says, when Lysias, the commander, gets here, then I'll decide your case. Well, apparently, Lysias didn't come. Apparently, he didn't come for several years. Apparently, he never came. And so because Lysias never came, and because Paul's case is being decided by a spineless, conniving leader, he gets to spend 700 days in a jail cell. 700 mornings waking up and wondering, I wonder if today is going to be the day that I'm going to get set free. 700 plus nights going to sleep in a cold and a dark place. Shut off from the rest of the world, mostly. He's got a few friends. 700 days. What? That's not fair. That's not just. 700 days in prison because of a, a leader with a Without a backbone. 700 days wondering when Jesus' word to him is going to come true. Because remember, Jesus said to him, as you testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So Paul's got a word from the Lord. You're going to Rome. You're going to represent me. You're going to stand up for me. But it's not happening. And it's still not happening. And the silence and the length of time that this carries on is painful. Two years of being called out, questioned, sent back, called out, questioned, sent back. Two years of wondering, God, what are you doing? When is this going to end? Why am I stuck here? Why isn't he releasing me? Why aren't you releasing me? Friends, what do we do when God's made a promise or God's given a calling or God has highlighted for us some promise of Scripture of which Paul tells the Corinthians, everyone is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And God says to us, That's for you. That's for you too. That's for you. Trust me. I'm going to do this in your life. And it's not happening. What do we do when God's spoken, God's called, 
God's promised and it's not yet happening. What do we do when we find ourselves in a place that feels dark or that feels cut off and we aren't hearing? Well, one thing that we could do is take account of whether we are the source of our being cut off and in the dark because sometimes that really is the case. Sometimes we've wandered away from the Lord and we've wandered into um, sin. And we've brought about the darkness. So if that's the case, there's a really simple and sweet answer. And the answer is repent. Turn around. Turn back to the Lord. Acknowledge that he is the way and the truth and the life and live in his light. Turn away from evil. But that's not what Paul's dealing with this morning. Paul's not in a jail cell because he sinned against God. Paul's not in a dark place because he did something wrong. He's in a dark place because somebody else did something wrong and God's not doing anything about it. And that's the thing that I want to say is, I think, an issue of struggle for Paul and can be for us. Because remember, he's preaching Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of heaven and he's Lord of earth. Jesus himself said, all authority has been given to me. It's mine. I'm delegating it to you. Therefore, go and make disciples. The Lord is sovereign. He's strong. He's able. He's good. When he wants to remove somebody that's that's uh, an evil dictator, he can do it. He showed us that over and over and over in the Old Testament. But he's not doing it here. And he's not doing it. And he's not doing it. And Paul's stuck in jail and stuck in jail and stuck in jail with a promise of something to come, but it's not happening. He's still in the dark place. And so the question I want to ask this morning and answer together is how do we cope? How do we survive? And I'll say it this way. How do we even thrive in that dark place when we don't understand why or when? How do we thrive? Uh, it's it's no surprise to most of you that I served in China for a few years, and the first time I moved to China was 2004, and uh, we had we had wonderful training by the organization that sent us, and three weeks of it actually, and uh, in the third week when we were in Beijing, the woman who was in charge of our training that week, her name was Joanne Pittman. At the very end, she gathered us all together and she said, "I want you to remember, if nothing else, I want you to remember this one thing." She said. Life and serving the Lord are like a three-legged stool. And if the stool is missing one of those legs, it will fall over. You need all three of these legs all the time in your life. And here they are. You need to know that God is good all the time. He is always only good to you. His intentions toward you are good, and they don't change. You also need to know God is sovereign. He is strong. He is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He is able to do anything. The third leg of that stool is, life in this fallen world is very hard. Life serving and following Jesus Christ and seeking his kingdom in this fallen world is very, or can be at times, very, very hard. God is good. God is sovereign. Life 
and following Jesus Christ and seeking his kingdom can be very hard. You have one of those legs that falls off and you, she said, will fall prey to the bait of Satan. What is that bait? The bait is offense that leads to bitterness. Offense that leads to bitterness. This is so prevalent that a man by the name of John Bevere, I think that's how you say it, wrote a whole book. Bevere, I don't know, Bevere. He wrote a whole book called The Bait of Satan. And in his book, he concentrates on primarily on human relationships and on the way in which um, Satan is constantly baiting us to take offense at the things that we say and do to each other. We say things and we take them, you know, they hurt. Somebody says something and they hurt or they don't understand us and we get offended. And if we latch onto that offense, we get stuck in unforgiveness and unforgiveness as we don't deal with it leads to bitterness. And the scripture tells us, uh, let no bitterness gr- grow up within you or let no bitter root grow up within you because it defiles many. It will defile many people. Well, we can get offended at each other, but we can also get offended at God. We can get offended when we think that he is somehow, some way, turning his face away from us. That he's not as good to me as he is to the next person. That the promises in his word aren't all for me, or he's not making good on them, or he's not treating me. It's very, very easy to slip into uh, a place where we begin to doubt God's goodness. And I, I want us to see that this is the seed that was planted in the garden from by Satan that Adam and Eve took. They took the bait. And it's the seed that has been r- r- at work attempting to ruin the entire human race for all of human history. But it started in the garden. Did God really say you shouldn't eat? He's holding out on you. What will happen is when you eat that, you'll actually become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, there's something that God's not given you that you would need and will get through that fruit. And if and they take the bait. God's withholding something. He's not good to you right now. And they take the bait and it ruins them. That same bait is being offered to us all the time. And so, remember, you've probably heard me say this a number of times, but um, sometimes when you read Scripture, you got to say to yourself, what's here? And you make observations about what's in the text. But then you also got to say to yourself, what's not here? That might be, that I might expect to see here. And so I was really struck when I read this passage that what's not here is any bitterness in Paul. Forty people want to kill him. More than 40 people want to kill him. They're falsely accusing him. You don't see any anger. You don't see any bitterness. He's stuck in a jail cell and he's getting called up and called up to talk. And what does it say? He just responds. He talks about faith in Jesus Christ. He uses every opportunity to talk about the gospel. He discourses on righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Even from his jail cell, he's concerned about the kingdom of God. 
And when we flip forward and we read the next text next week and he gets up again, you're going to hear there's no bitterness. So even though this doesn't probably make a whole lot of sense to him, he's on his way to Rome. God called him to Rome. He's stuck in this jail cell under this commander or this governor that won't change his mind. There's no bitterness. There's just Paul cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he's given opportunities. And I would venture to say there's even joy. And so I want to ask, what's Paul's secret? What is his secret? Well, listen to this. Paul writes a letter to the Philippians. And he writes this letter from Rome. About a, probably about six months to a year after he got out of his jail cell. So he's written this letter on the back end of the experience of two years in jail. And listen to what he has to say to the Philippians. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content or to be happy, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. And we might say, great, but how? I want to know how. How does Jesus give the strength? How can Paul say, I can do all this through him who gives me strength? Well, I think he answers that for us. A little earlier, he wrote to the Philippians and he wrote this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Remember, he's under house arrest in Rome, three years of being in imprisonment, and these are his words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying that he's learned this and he's saying that his secret to being happy all the time, to being content, is to rejoice and to pray with thanksgiving. Rejoice, pray with thanksgiving. Really? That's your secret, Paul. Thanksgiving, that changes everything. Rejoice and give thanks. When you're in a jail cell and you don't know how long it's going to carry on and it's night 656 and you don't know when you're getting out, you just thanking the Lord, just rejoicing, just praising him. Just thank the Lord. Thank you, God, that I'm in jail. Thank you that you're with me. Thank you. That's your secret. 
Yes. Listen to this. I want to show you two places where this one principle and then another place, if I remember. Here's the principle. Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church and they're asking him questions and they're wrestling over things. Chapter eight, I think it is. And they're wrestling over the issue of can we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols and or demons? You know what Paul says to them? He doesn't dispute the fact that food sacrificed to idols or dedicated to demons um, has comes with very real uh, attachment, like that it's a real issue, that things that get dedicated to Satan really do uh, end up sort of belonging to him and having baggage. He says, it's no problem to eat it as long as I receive it with thanksgiving. That the act of thanksgiving itself makes it clean. It's a, it's, I'm, I'm summarizing, it's a, cha- a chapter. But what he says is the act of receiving something from God with thanksgiving sanctifies it. It makes it clean. And he uses that word specifically, and that's important for us because you might remember that in the Old Testament, when something's sanctified, it means it's set apart for God as holy. And he's saying, this food can be set apart for God and me as holy through my thanksgiving. It's my giving, it's my giving thanks to God that makes it holy. And then he goes on to say, well, I won't eat it if it bothers somebody else's conscience. I won't destroy a weaker brother or sister, but my conscience isn't bothered. This is clean. This food got cleaned up because I gave thanks to God. And then what, what he's showing us in this passage is our lives, our dark situations, our confused and unknowing situations can get cleaned up and filled with the glory of God when we give him thanks. That thanksgiving ch- literally changes or transforms dark situations. So here's where he showed it. He showed it to us earlier when he was, he had been whipped and torn open and he got thrown in prison and he and Silas, what are they doing? Licking their wounds? No. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And there's an earthquake. And the jail's open. And the jailer's coming to Jesus. And Paul's baptizing him and his whole family. That situation got sanctified. It got cleaned up. It got light in it because they thanked the Lord when their backs were torn open. When they were in pain. Yeah. Thanksgiving changes everything. You know why? Because Thanksgiving says, God, you are good all the time. And nothing can change that. No thought I can have. No thing that can be done to me. No thing that can be taken away from me. No sin I can commit. No anything can change the fact that you are only all good all the time. And I can get to the place where I worship you for your goodness no matter what it looks like. No matter how dark it is. No matter how bad my marriage is. How bad my family is. How bad that relationship is. How far away my calling seems. How far I might seem from. I can worship you. Because you're unchanging. You are only good. Your intentions toward me are only good all the time. 
This is so true, friends, that one woman felt compelled to write a book called 1,000 Gifts because she was moved by the Lord to just start thanking him as much as she could. Ann Voskamp is her name. She lives in Ontario, Canada. And she, she practiced this as a discipline. She kept a little journal in the kitchen in a pen. And every time she saw anything she could thank God for, she wrote it down. Number 27, daffodils in the sun. Number 28, this. Number 29, all the way up to a 1,000. And she said, change my life. Change my life to thank God all the time. This is not something that we want to learn when we find ourselves in the dark place. If we haven't learned it before we're in that jail cell or before we're in the place where we don't know or understand why God is allowing something or why this situation is occurring or why it's not ending, it's kind of too late. Now, it's never too late with God. He can still help you to learn it in there. But it'll be really hard. We want to practice and discipline ourselves to live lives of thankfulness all the time so that when these seasons come, and they come, and they will come, that we have a victorious, overcoming life. That's what John wrote. I thank God for you, young men and women, because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you and you are victorious over the enemy who seeks to dissuade you of the goodness of God. Paul learned these things. And what I think is so amazing is that he had no idea when he wrote that letter to the Philippians, that it would be and become the very words of God. He didn't intend it to be that. But listen to this. He let his life be that seed that got dropped into the ground. He let the Holy Spirit build this kind of faith in God within him. He wrote, not only did he write that letter to the Philippians immediately after this time, I want you now to hear what he wrote immediately before it. These words were written by Paul to the church in Rome that he had never yet met literally weeks to months before being captured in Jerusalem. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified or made right. Those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he's got the whole thing accomplished. 
What then shall we say in response to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Remember, he's just been charged now. It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He wrote it, he believed it, and then it was proved in his life. He wrote it, he believed it, and then it was proved in his life as he went through some of that stuff. God wants to take each one of us to the place where his word is proved in our lives, where we demonstrate and live in that place of abiding so deeply in his love and of his goodness toward us that no matter what happens, there is an epistle, there is a letter of thanksgiving that's being written through our lives. That just as the church looked on at Paul and was strengthened and was encouraged by what they saw in him as he persevered through difficulty, that so we could look at each other and others could look at us and we would be a living letter that says, God is good. God is sovereign, even in this dark place. How? How do we do that? We nurture thanksgiving we rejoice and we praise the lord and if you are really stuck no not just when you're really stuck all the time all the time you you keep your eyes but especially when you're really stuck you keep your eyes on this when you don't understand when you're confused when it's dark this cross says to this cross is the word of god the cross is the ultimate word, the ultimate word that God speaks to us where he says, I value you. I love you and I value your life so deeply that I humbled myself to become one of you and I gave my life. And as Paul says, if he gave his life, how much more would he not give us, graciously give us all things? So maybe I can't see the all things. Maybe I'm not out of the dark. Paul's not when we leave this passage. 
But I can profess it. I can praise Him. I can thank Him for all things. I can worship. I can live in that place. Not dictated or dominated by what I see and what I'm experiencing, but by the reality of a God and Father who does not change and who loves me and cares for me with an unchanging love. Amen. Let's, let's pray and then we're going to respond with the song Sovereign. Father, we pray that what was proved in Paul's life would be proved in ours. We pray that you strengthen each of us in our inner beings with power through your spirit so that Christ may dwell more and more in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and established in love together with all the saints, may grasp how high and deep and wide and long is your love that we may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. And now to you who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, to you be glory in the church, in us, and in Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. Amen.